Living in this neighborhood is is uh, generally fairly quiet, and maybe twice or sometimes three times a year there's a music party, and it just so happens that there's one tonight. <laughs> And I, I was uh, remembering that in, in monasteries in, or temples in Thailand or in India, what they, what they would do was they would get these mega speakers and point them towards the villages. And so when the village was having a party, then they would do like all night parental chanting. <laughs> So they would have like a, you know, a, a, a war, you know, a stereo war as to who could be more annoying to the other. <laughs> and, and I don't know who won the contest, but I just know that they both were very determined. <laughs> so there's a, a couple of things that I'd like to speak about tonight, and one of them is... Um, you know, sheltering from the storm. So yesterday we were caught out in a storm, and again today, you know, the weather forecast said it's supposed to be sunny all day. And, um, you know, I look out and the clouds are rolling in and they've got some ominousness to them. And so I thought, you know, I think I'm going to head on home. And, um, and so I came home and there was a couple of drops and they were quite mild. And, you know, I started getting things prepared and getting things ready. And then what can be the case here before a storm comes through, a storm system, is the winds kick up. And and the winds are are pretty strong. And, you know, it, you know, the tents were leaning and the things were blowing and and so it's like, you know, you need to batten down the sh- the shelter the, the shutters and you've gotta pick up the stuff that's gonna fly away and you've gotta make sure that the tents are secured and and anything that's going to get, you know, trashed by the winds or the rains, you need to move it. And so there's this kind of external looking at the world around us as, is, you know, how do you take shelter from a storm? And, you know, I can't tell you how grateful I am that these, these are very humble abodes, but they're solid. And, uh, you know, the crazy rain that we had last year that caused all the flooding, you know, there was no problem with any of these structures. The only leaking that happened was right here there was a there was a, 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 a damp place on the concrete. It wasn't even wet. It just looked a little and it was that big. And you know, people who were on the mountain were having flooding issues because the groundwater swelled up so much that the basements had flooded. And you know, pe- people were getting flooded everywhere. So to have shelters that were solid and and, and engineered so that it drained well and even though these don't have gutters on them, there was no flooding. You know, nothing got damp except for this tiny little spot that was right here. And so, you know, the rain and the flash flood sirens and the sandbagging and the floods rising and, you know, the streets washing and to have dwelling places that are secure is 
in that, it was really obvious what a blessing that was. You know, it was extraordinary. And so, you know, we spend a certain amount of our time trying to figure out, you know, what we can do to shore up our buildings and to make a life that is, you know, secure so that the kind of storm systems that run through don't flatten us. And those are physical storms, those are emotional storms, those are relational storms, you know, the various different kinds of storms. And depending on our resourcefulness, our creativity, our ingenuity, our engineering skills, our collaborative skills depends on how well all of that works. For me, I don't have engineering skills. I ended up in a place where other people had, you know. So I didn't have a single ounce of input into the engineering of these buildings. But Fergie's got a really good sense of that. And Frank, who's the builder, he built these places in the 30s. And self-taught, you know, he built all of these buildings from recycled material. It was in the Depression, and everything that he got was recycled. You know, he had a really good sense of, of what was right and how to do things. And, and so it was like, you know, so we had crazy, crazy rain and no problem. So part of our practice is to certainly understand, to create external environments that are safe and good enough and understand how to navigate the elements. And so, you know, we're out in the, wherever we were, everyone was in different places. And, you know, the, the information is, is it's supposed to be sunny today? And then, well, guess what? It's not. And so this is typical. You know, the, the weather report says one thing and reality says something else. And we have to both listen to the report and tune into reality. And I remember I was walking in, in, in the monastery grounds in England with a couple of friends, and it was raining out. And, I mean, you could see the raindrops. You could feel the raindrops. They were making raindrop marks on your clothing. But there were no clouds in the sky. And the person who I was walking with said, it can't be raining. There's no clouds. <laughs> And in that situation, it seems completely ludicrous because it was raining. It was obviously raining. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that it was raining. But on, a, on other levels, we actually do that all the time, where we have a reality of a view about the reality of how things are supposed to be, and then we superimpose that onto what's actually happening. And so, you know, so we can think that's crazy. It's raining. Of course it's raining. And we'll have to figure out why it is raining when there's no clouds in the sky. But that's a conceptual problem. The reality is, is, is that it's raining. Yeah. And we do that. You know, we think, you know, I can't be sick or I can't be feeling this way or I can't have uh, somebody do this to me because I'm not that kind of a person or they're not that kind of a person, you know. And so we construct an idea about who they are based on some sense of things and, 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 and forget that human beings are composite of all kinds of things and some of which are visible to us and some of which are not. Some of which are not even necessarily visible to the person themselves. And so they can come up with things that they say or do that seems completely discordant with our idea and we feel shocked to the nines because there is a discord between our idea and reality. 
And when sometimes that happens with people that you're really close to, it's very disturbing because it feels like there's been such a profound breach of trust. But what has been breached, the breach has been is, is that we were not um, in full cognizance of the totality of the person and their latent tendencies. We weren't watching the triggers that arouse those latent tendencies to arise. And we feel that that's the sum total of who they are, which it's not. And so the sense of, this is my friend, who I trust, who I've entrusted, you know, has betrayed me. Well, uh, certainly there's a way in which that's correct, but partly the reason why that's happened is because we, we, we attach to an idea of them as a solid person. And we completely forget that there are no such solid people and that people are just a composite of a variety of factors that are constantly arising and ceasing in, in combination with, with uh, their own latent tendencies and ripenings of vipaka and all kinds of things. So we are longing to batten down the hatches and have a secure home. And we can make certain preparations to do that. I'm absolutely grateful that Fergie has a really good understanding about um, water drainage and design and things like that, so that when they renovated the building, this building, he put in trenches around it so that it could drain. And I'm thankful for Frank, though I never met him, for building that building in a way where, you know, it just doesn't flood. But in terms of our spiritual practice, it's not as if we ignore the buildings and the world around us. You know, we need to be in relationship with the world. We need to actually watch the weather, even if the weather report says that it's not going to rain. And then we need to make sensible decisions, you know. So you feel comfortable out in the garden of the gods and the storm comes through. There's not a problem. There's not a sense of this is going to be, you know, kind of life-threatening situation. But yesterday I was remembering, you know, after we came down and we sorted out and debriefed after our eventful day yesterday, there was an awful lot of trees up at the top that were burnt. And there were very few trees on the way up that were burnt. And it was finally, you know, I'm putting the pieces together, that it's lightning, you know. And so on the top is a very dangerous place for being hit by lightning. And not on the top is less dangerous for being hit by lightning. And so we need to begin to get a sense of where we are and how it works and what's happening here. So independent of our own internal sense, we're actually tuned in to reality of what's going on around us, you know. Whether or not we perceive the danger, we are looking to see what's actually happening around us, you know. Because there's many times when we can feel, I feel completely safe, and the reality is, well, that's not the case. Or we can feel totally terrified, and the reality is that we're actually okay. So we need to have a discerning capacity to be able to navigate what our internal felt sense is and what external reality is. Yeah. And make wise decisions based on that. So... A couple of years ago, I got mold sickness, and it caused a chaos of, of chemical sensitivities. I was, I was sensitive to virtually everything. Fragrances and chemicals and carpets and buildings, and, and, and so it was oh, just really difficult. 
and I was traveling, which, which that is such a hard, that's so hard to be on the road, because every place, it was the opposite of feeling like I was going into sanctuary, it felt like I was going, every house I went into felt like I was going into a war zone, you know, where's, where's the stuff that's going to get me, you know, and how can I sidestep it? And the woman who I was staying with was very kind and very generous, both in allowing me to stay as well as cleaning the house four days before I got there and putting all of the chemical substances out in the garage so that I wouldn't be activated. A remarkably thoughtful, sensitive thing to do. And so the place felt, you know, okay enough. And I went to the room I was staying in, I crawled into the sheets, and my system just went... The sheets had been washed with fabric softener. You know, and I mean, you don't think about fabric softener as, as you know, as a, as a reactive substance. But when you're sensitive like that, it is a reactive substance. And, and for whatever which reason, my system was reacting as if I just walked through open machine gun fire. I mean, it was like I was totally freaked out and moving very rapidly into a complete shutdown where I was freezing. So I had to talk myself out of it and like took every single ounce of effort I could to say, get up and pull the sheets and the pillowcases off the bed, stick them in a plastic bag and put them in another room, okay? Because my system was rapidly moving into a place where volition and discernment were not operating. So I spent the night trying to calm down my activation and you know I've got some resources and I tried all my tricks and I hardly slept and I got up in the next morning and I was still shaky and and I had to go downtown and so I got on a bike and I was going to pedal away and I just couldn't believe how fabulous it felt to pedal you know and so here you have a, a system which has been activated and I went into a freeze response and the freeze response was not paying attention to the fact that my cognitive centers were telling me it's fabric softener, it's not machine gun fire, you're okay. The, the, my brain was not interested in that information. It couldn't process that, it couldn't link those things together. But when I got on the bike and I started pedaling, I was escaping from the danger. So my nervous system, the primitive part of the brain, was engaging in a way where I was escaping. I was discharging and escaping the thing that was getting me. Okay? Now, cognitively, I was very well aware of the fact the fabric softener was not attacking me. <laughs> And that pedaling on my bike to get away from the fabric softener was actually not going to help me much. But in terms of my nervous system, something entirely different was operating. Because it wasn't a rational, cognitive process that was happening. My nervous system had gotten activated and I was in a freeze response. And as far as my nervous system knew, it was a reptilian brain that for me to get on the bike and to get out of there, I was escaping this life-threatening danger and that everything was going to be okay. So that by the time I got downtown, I couldn't believe how much better I felt. So here we have a situation where cognitively I was well aware of the fact that what was happening wasn't life-threatening, but my nervous system was completely activated 
And I needed to actually follow the impulse, you know, get on a bike and ride, you know. So understanding these different kinds of ways in which we get activated and recognizing that they need different responses is part of our kind of how do we batten down the hatches, you know? How do we take shelter in a storm? If I'd, I could have stayed, you know, until the, until the, the, the cows came home telling myself it's okay because it's just fabric softener. That was not what I needed to hear because the, that part of the nervous system absolutely does not process cognitive information. It does not want to know. So to get a sense of our own internal systems and get a sense of when we're activated like that, that we don't need information, we need to understand what our system is asking and learn how to follow those signals, then helps us self-regulate and be able to calm down. And then once we've calmed down to a certain level, then we can begin to start processing things cognitively in terms of well, what do I need to do in order to feel more safe or more comfortable in this situation? Or is there anything else more that's needed? You know, the sheets are out of the room. Is there anything else that I need to do to make sure that I'm safe? But before our nervous system has, has relaxed enough, that kind of cognitive process is not going to help us. It's being processed through the wrong brain. You know. So... Externally and understanding our nervous system and understanding the different things that get activated is part of our practice. It's absolutely part of our practice. We need to understand that. And we need to be able to bring the right medicine to the right thing. And so, like, when I broke my wrist, first thing that I did was I had it put in a plaster. And then once I had it put in a cast, then I was able and free to experiment with the various different modalities that I had as to what other things would be useful. So you have to deal with the thing at the level that it's manifesting. And then you can move out from there in terms of the resources that you have. In terms of our internal practice, one of the points or the places of practice is not only to be operating on the level of the external world, but to begin to touch into a place where it's safe no matter what. Okay? whether there's going to be rain, whether there's going to be lightning, whether there's going to be fire, whether there's going to be floods, whether the government goes to hell, whether the climate goes to hell. You know, there's a place of safety that we have that is kind of independent of the vast number of cons or the conditions that give rise to us. It's a, it's a, it's a place of, of inner peace and of inner freedom. Now, as long as we are operating as a separate sense of who we are, as long as we are activated by our conditioning, as long as we feel the sense of fear of death, then this is um, a, a possibility to move towards. It's not something that we have an easy place to access. Because all of those things, feeling separate, feeling death, being activated by the conditioning that's happening, so much so that we're not able to be present and responsive to it, we're just reactive to it, it means that we are in this kind of 
desperate situation to try and protect what's here and what's arising. Okay. And for most of us, a lot of our life, that's what our life is about. You know? And the point of practice is to actually touch into something that is beyond that. So when we look at the Buddha's story, you know, the reason why he left his home and his family was because he was really, really impacted by the reality of aging, sickness, and death. And that no matter how talented or how much resource he had or how um, much he was loved or how much he loved his family, those fundamental things of aging and sickness and death, he had no power over, over himself nor of anybody that he loved. And so his whole longing for enlightenment was to find something that is beyond old age, sickness, and death. Something that actually is not dependent on the sun always shining, and the winds not blowing, and not flooding, and there not being fires in order to feel like, I'm going to be okay. Because the I is not based on the whole multifarious of conditions that normally it's based on. So in looking at this practice where we are dropping in to that which is uh, steady and stable and peaceful and loving and secure, what gives us access to that? What supports us with that? And, you know, today and yesterday, you know, I was where I found this really sweet little spot that yesterday that, you know, it was like a tiny little patch of meadow on this rock. And these spectacular crags were just across from me. And there was this big, huge rock right next to me. And then right next to that little meadow patch was a pine tree that was growing in looked to me just like solid rock, you know. I mean, there was a tiny little bit of gravel that had gathered, but as far as I could tell, it looked to me like it was absolutely solid rock. And so here's this pine tree on top of the crags. You know, there's going to be very little moisture that's going to gather. There's very little nutrient that's there. There's very little like softness that's supporting it. And yet, there it is, and it looked robust, it looked healthy, it looked vigorous, it looked strong. And it's like, wow, that's an incredible testimony of perseverance, you know? Of this is where you land, and this is where you sprout, and go for it, you know? Just go for it. And so, you know, I sometimes, you know, cave into, you know, it's not, it's not supportive enough, you know, and I think of all of the things that aren't present, you know, and, and how much more support it could be, you know, so I go into like, what if fantasies, you know, and then, and then I look at some of these trees and where they're growing, and it's like, wow, you know, they don't have support systems. <laughs> 
you know, so what does it mean to connect with that kind of like fortitude of perseverance, of like having a sense of, well, this is where I am right now, and I'm just going to go for it. This is the parameter of my practice. This is the support that I have. This is the, the shelter that I have. This is the community that I have. I'm going to go for it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be clear about one's aspiration and to be willing to put forward effort in a way that maximizes whatever is present? So perseverance is a really important quality. Just staying with it, keep staying with it, just doing it, just doing it, just doing it, just doing it. Keep doing it, staying with it. You like it, you do it. You don't like it, you do it. You're confused about it, you still do it. You know, just staying with it. Another quality that supports perseverance is patience. And I'm not quite sure why in my personality structure I was born with zero patience, but that seems to have been the case. (laughs) I had zero patience. I could always figure out how to do something by being clever or cute or smart or something, but I could never figure out what patience was. You know, I didn't know what patients were. And then when I was living in the bush, when I told you I was there, you know, in the summer times, it was 115 degrees out. We had no electricity, which meant we had no fans. We had no swimming pools, okay? There was, like, no way to get cool. Like, no way to get cool, you know? And I remember after eating my lunch and I had to walk, you know, 20 minutes to go back to where my hut was. And I just stayed there for like three hours because I couldn't figure out how to get up and walk for 20 minutes. (laughs) I mean, living in 115 degree heat where there's no place to get cool, I really had a different appreciation why people murder each other. You know, what it's like when your brains melt and dribble out your ears and you just... You cannot think, you know, just the simplest thing is just like impossible, you know. So, and there was nowhere I could go. There was no place to get cool. There was nothing to do. And I had absolutely no control over it, you know. I just had to endure it. And I figured out how to endure it, you know, I figured it out. And I also figured out that it wasn't entirely true that there was no place that I could go because there were these these overhang caves. So they weren't proper caves, they were just overhangs. But they were overhangs with like, I don't know, four feet of rock. And so I decided I was going to move in one of them for the next hot season because that that space in in there never got hotter than 87 degrees. So it could be 115 outside, and it was 87 inside. So this was not the ascetic move. This was the white, (laughs) middle-class, middle-aged lady move to comfort (laughs) going into the cave where it's cooler, you know. 
So patience of just bearing with things that are uncomfortable. Now, any of us who've got chronic pain, any of us who've dealt with chronic illness, any of us who've got, you know, have had a deep-seated longing and you can't make it happen, you know, it requires patience. A lot of patience. And sometimes we spin because we don't have the patience. Or we haven't found how to have the patience. Now, patience and perseverance, there, there also needs to be discernment because there, there, it's really possible to, just to say, well, I'm just going to sit and weather this out. And yet there are ways that you can engage with something that actually is supportive, you know. So, like, when I came here, I, I, um, the first women's facilitator group at the end of the live weekend, we planted a number of things. We planted some lilacs and we planted some shrubs. And, you know, I, I hadn't been here long enough to really get a feeling for the land and I hadn't done any of the permaculture studies that I've done in the last even two years to know how to enrich the soil and protect and things like that. So, you know, we figured we'll just dig a hole and stick it in there and that Bob's your uncle is finished, you know, and it's a xeric plant so you don't have to water it, so I won't water it. And, <laughs> and you know a couple one didn't survive and one just kind of barely made it through the freezing winter last year you know just barely made it through so I'm reading the permaculture books and figuring out about mulching and protecting and taking the weeds away and 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 these things so that it keeps the moisture in and then keeps it protected against the frost so I thought, well, okay, I can do that now. I can, I can sheet mulch around it, you know, and, and see that it's got some. And for the first time, it's bloomed. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you can, you don't just have to weather something. You know, you can continue to look and see whether there's ways of making something a little bit better. Or, you know, a concussion is is there's not a lot of things that you can do for concussions. They kind of just have to do themselves. And one person very generously sent me a whole box of, 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 of supplements that are specifically to help brains get better. And then I thought, okay, so I have to just, I have to just wait it out. And then I thought, well, what about these energy medicine things that I know? And it's like, oh, yeah. You know, and it's made a huge difference. So since, since I've been doing the energy medicine, I've noticed a marked shift in my cognitive ability and my lack of being completely wiped out by tiredness. So you think you have to just weather it with patience. This is going to take as long as it's going to take. And then suspend discernment and release connection with all of the resources that one has. And then, and then sometimes they trickle back in and you think, oh, I can use this in this situation. I can actually bring that here and see what happens. It's not in order to um, pick up craving and attach to that so that I obliterate the need to be patient. It's, it's the willing to try something without having... Uh, 
a, a huge expectation or outcome about what the result is. So it's a picking up a tool without attachment with the outcome. And those of us who've been sick or have had pain for a long time, that's a very, very, very interesting place of how to stay engaged with effort and release expectation and hope of outcome. Very, very interesting place. Now sometimes when I go into the garden of the gods, it's not all the time, and it depending on what I'm going through depends on how easy I can access it. There's a sense of dropping into a awareness that is pervasive, that pervades everything. It pervades everything that I am, it pervades everything that there is, it pervades everything. And in that space of relaxing into that awareness, it's it, it's it, it feels really clear to me that whatever is arising is held in that awareness. That that awareness is so big and so embracing and so inclusive that the individual arisings cease to have any separate, independent um, way of being a problem. It's just arising. And it's just arising in this huge, vast spaciousness of awareness. And Certainly over these last years, you know, with the variety of mind states that I've been navigating, there's been a fair amount of turmoil that I've had to deal with. And also quite a lot of physical challenges. And yet, if I can touch that or get close to that or remember what that is, then it creates this wide open space where I cease to have any kind of angle or agenda or expectation or hope about anything. And in that wide, open, spacious, embracing awareness, there's no resistance, and then there's very little agitation, and there's much more sense of calm and peace and clarity about then how to move forward with the variety of things that I'm experiencing, whatever it is so that I can then bring forward the discernment that comes from that clarity back into the circumstances to how do I navigate to bring a little bit more peace and ease and support where that's needed. So when I'm in that space or when I can touch that space, when I know that space, I really have a sense that that's actually the essence. That's actually what I'm made out of. That's what we are all made out of. That's what everything is made out of. And, and it, it, it isn't Buddhist. It doesn't say that you have to be Buddhist in order to have access to this. And it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not exclusive. There aren't only certain people who, who are made out of this. There aren't certain things that are living that are made out of this and other things are not. It's, it's, it's the nature of everything. And so in that... In that space where there's that clarity, there's a sense of, of, of being at peace with what is happening. And in that sense of being at peace with what's happening, there, there's a sense of no matter 
what kind of challenges and situations that are coming or that are needing to be navigated from, from that perspective there, there is no resistance, there's no issue, there is no problem. Now, my nervous system tends to be uh, amped up quite high. I tend to find challenges everywhere. You know, I can look and see the problems everywhere. So to be able to touch into a place where there are no problems... It's the kind of like the most exquisite, delicious, most yummy thing in the whole universe. It's just so deeply restorative and healing. So, access and not having access. When I don't have access, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It means that I don't have access. And there are various different things that can support having access. And for me, the Garden of the Gods is really great access. And I get on my bike or I walk and I'm, I'm there, and it really is incredibly supportive. Because there's something about, I don't know what, the power of the land, the rocks, I don't know what it is, where it just holds me and it makes it a lot easier for me just to drop into that space. Now... The point of images, the point of statues, the point of prajnaparamita, the point of shrines, the point of chanting, is, is through reflection and qualities of heart to remember that space where there are no problems and to remember the things that support having access to that. So it's a traditional practice to recollect the qualities of the Buddha. It's not done in the Vipassana scene very often, but it's a traditional practice to recollect the qualities of the Buddha, the radiance, the luminosities, the vastness of it, the, the, the way in which it is supportive to everyone. And is, is, it's, a, it's a very powerful thing. And for those of us who, who suffer a lot from feeling of um, self-doubt or a sense of... Um, not feeling worthy or a sense of self-hatred or a sense of um, we don't really have a right to exist. Any of these kinds of expressions of whatever, I don't even know what the big overarching name of them are, it's really, really, really helpful to contemplate the nature of the Buddha's mind because that Buddha's mind is not an out there thing, it's what we are made out of. And when we contemplate the nature of the radiant, luminous, undefiled, expansive mind, and then have some way of connecting to the fact that that actually is our essence, that's actually who we are and what we are made out of, then it gives contrast to these beliefs, to these habits, to these thoughts, to these moods that somehow say, well, that might be true for everybody else in the entire universe except for me, you know? 
so that we begin to start like feeding ourselves the kind of queen bee nectar, you know, where we start to grow into the divinity of who we are because we're feeding ourselves the food that allows us to connect with our own divine essence. Is that's our nature. Contemplating the Dhamma. Contemplating the Sangha. They're the same. It is creating a, a kind of divine nectar that allows us to touch into the quality in ourselves that allows us to be connected to something that is moving towards awakening, committed to awakening, bound for awakening, because we are bound to see our own essence. So perseverance and patience and recollection, generosity, bringing the heart of care and kindness, and look at all of everything that's been happening on this retreat. You know, the way people care about each other and the land and making sure that the vihara is immaculate and that the food is beautifully prepared and, you know, the, the jungle is being tamed and the stairs are being excavated and the shoes are taken out from the rain and they're put under the shelter and people's stuff is, is supported and just there's infinite acts of kindness that are happening here. And it's mostly just coming because of the goodness of people's hearts, you know. And so when we, we can feel what that feels like when we are motivated through the goodness of our own heart to just do something that makes it a little bit easier for somebody else, takes care of the space, heals the land, makes it a little bit more beautiful, brings forward something that's nourishing, then it connects us with our own goodness. Having access to our own goodness is one of the reasons why generosity is such an incredibly important virtue to cultivate. Because of the blessings that come when we are living tethered to our own goodness. It's an absolute antidote to the kind of critical mind that says, you know, I'm not good enough. Or I didn't do it right. Or I, I, I can't possibly, you know. And so that heart of generosity cuts across the negativity, the critical, the judgment, the, the nasty, miserable, bitchy thing that keeps whacking you on the head. <laughs> As a contrast. Sila, or integrity, begins to give us the perspective of what it is to live with boundaries and to live in relationship where harmlessness is really a virtue that we uphold. 
And what that means when we start taking that to heart, where we begin to stop every single time we see these critical, judgmental, nasty thoughts and, and, and not follow that, not believe that, not take that to be the truth. Where we feel in our marrow the conviction that life is worth respecting and want to live our life supporting that and helping other people realize that. And then there's the practice. There's generosity, there's integrity, and there's the practice. There's the effort to show up. There's the effort to be present. There's the effort to respond. And there's the effort to move attention from focusing and fixating on the object of what's arising, the senses, the thoughts, the moods, the feelings, and finding how we can use relaxation to rest in the awareness that knows these things so that we work it from both sides. You know, I put this thing, I, I put it in here, and I usually, I usually twist it up, and, and almost every single time I take it out, it's a tangle. It's a total tangle, you know. I put it in here because I'm afraid if I don't put it in here, it's going to fall away. You know, these ear things, they fall off, and I'm afraid they're going to fall away. So I put it in here. Every time I take it out, it's a tangle. And sometimes it untangles quickly, and sometimes it untangles slowly. And sometimes I start with one side, and I get stuck, and so I start with the other side. And I, you know, so I move the tangle from one end, and then I sometimes move it from the other end. And that's exactly the way life is, you know? Sometimes it's simple and sometimes it's not simple. Sometimes we move one direction, we get stuck, we start from the other direction and move backwards. You know? Sometimes we work with the objects of what we're dealing with. Sometimes we work with the awareness that we're leaning into. Moving towards a place where we are sheltered from the storm. The storms of uncertainty, storms of aging, the storms of the worldly winds of pain and pleasure and happiness and unhappiness and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. storms of birth and death. I have received in the mail just two days ago a memorial to Ayadipa. She's a, a bhikkhuni. Uh, um, she was just in her early 60s and a couple of months ago 
she got a diagnosis that she had lung cancer. And in about five weeks, she was gone. You know, we don't, we don't ever know. We just don't ever know when our time is going to come. I was crossing the street at 31st and Cimarron and they had made this big, huge memorial on one of the uh, uh, street lights. And at the top of the memorial was a skateboard that they duct taped to the pole and there was pictures and there was flowers and there was writing. And so a couple days later I saw some kids with skateboards and there's a skateboard park. And so I said, do you know anything about that memorial? And they said, yeah, that was, that was my friend Nikki. What happened? He was riding a motorcycle and was cut off by a car. He's like 18 years old or something. Don't know. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen in terms of our own personal life and our trajectory of how long we're going to live. We don't know what's going to happen with the storms and we don't know some of these things we don't know. But we do know that we can practice. We do know that we can bring forward our perseverance and patience and virtue and aspiration. We know that we can do that work internally and we know that we can create the context externally that supports each other and supports us to do that work. We can allow the earth to hold us, to heal us, and we can touch back into people and animals and community to allow the interest, the value, the, the, the longing for these qualities of ripening to come more into fruition. And we can watch what happens. We can watch the ease that we experience. We can watch when stuck places are met and released. We can see the beauty of what happens when people come together in such a, a cooperative and caring way. And how impactful that is. And I can see what happens when I figure out that when you put some protection around a plant, it can bloom. You know. And so the land teaches me how to work with my body and my mind. And it holds me, it heals me, it allows me to discharge and to release. which gives me energy for practice and for support and for helping and for writing and for teaching. So when I take care of the land, the land takes care of me. When I take care of people, 
I feel the beauty of our connection as something that nourishes and sustains me. When I take care of the flowers, look at how beautiful they are. Just exquisite. So each of us is a flower, each of us is blooming in our own time, each of us is coming into the fullness of who we are. It's not something that we have to get. It's not something we have to get rid of. Relaxation, fullness, fruition. Comes about when the conditions ripen. Just like the flowers bloom when the conditions ripen. So we can make the effort to bring the conditions that help ripen. And we can move out of the way of the things that do not help ripen. But realizing our essence, we don't have to go very far for that. It's not dependent on our hairdo or our clothes. It's not dependent on whether they're playing the music or they're not. It's not dependent on whether the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. It's right here. It's in the present. It's right here. And so we pick up what we see. We see how we're reacting to what is going on. We work with our reaction. We allow our reaction to be a gateway to touch our essence. Every single thing is connected to essence. Everything. The dust bunnies, the porta potty, the dishes, the toilet, the shrine, the lump in the carpet. So how we pay attention and what we do with what we pay attention to is the portal. And it's everywhere. Every minute.
So let's stop there for the evening time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.